Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Visualizing Dracula was written by Simon Cook and published by the Book Collector in its issue for summer 2021. In it, Simon looks at all the various illustrated editions of Dracula, which are perfectly splendid, as you would expect. It is read here by Sarah Bennett. Bram Stoker's Dracula is undoubtedly the most famous and troubling of Gothic tales. Widely read and never out of print since its publication in 1897, it has attained the status of myth. Although Stoker did not invent the literary vampire, which originated in the writings of Polidori and Le Fanu, he produced a character that has become an archetype of popular culture. Resonating in the late 19th century, it still resonates today. Stoker wrote his weird tale as a reflection on sex, death, and the ever-present threat, as the late Victorians called it, of degeneration, of slipping back on the evolutionary scale rather than ascending. And in our own time, Dracula has acted, among several possibilities, as a symbol of capitalism feeding on society. Like all Gothic texts, its applications are unstable and open to interpretation. Yet the book's continuing appeal is more widely based on its power as a chiller. Always unsettling, it touches a vein of primal fear, taking us into the world of the unnatural, undead, of shifting identities and unwholesome desires. These elements are part of a gothic iconography which Stoker presents in a highly visual style in the manner of late Victorian painting in words. Figured as a series of imagistic tableau, the novel is composed of intense physical details with a strong emphasis on space, light and especially livid colours. The key moments stand out as part of a montage that includes Harker's journey through a menacing landscape, his exploration of a castle made up of locked rooms and dead ends, Lucy with Stenra with a stake through her heart and Dracula in the shape of a wolf bursting through the window. This material is ready-made for pictorial representation, and it is barely surprising to find that Dracula exists in many visual forms. Its foremost manifestation is, of course, in film. The text has been interpreted in widely varying styles, with radical differences in the approach to character. On the one hand is the expressionistic grotesque of Murnau's silent classic Nosferatu, 1922, with Max Schreck as the goblin-like vampire, and on the other, the suavely handsome Christopher Lee in Terence Fisher's colour-saturated film of 1958. Coppola's dreamlike treatment of 1992 and Todd Browning's early talkie, 1931, with Bella Lugosi, are equally diverse. These cinematic readings suggest ways of representing Dracula in a pictorial way, making it available in a more populist medium, and Stoker's tale has inspired an even wider response in the hands of book illustrators and cover designers. Though not illustrated when it first appeared, Dracula has been a fertile ground for graphic visualisation, especially in the period after 1931 when the text was popularised by Lugosi's screen persona. Aimed at diverse audiences, dozens of versions have appeared in the form of comics, graphic novels, limited foreign language and trade editions. Some are purely ephemeral. There is nevertheless a distinctive corpus of work which approaches the text as a serious project 
and sets out to find ways of representing its characters, themes and tone. This process of picturing is primarily expressed in the form of illustrations, although the exterior of the book is often treated as a visual opportunity. These paratextual elements are an important part of representing Stoker's tale and contribute to its meanings. The first English edition, published by Constable in 1897, exemplifies the use of a significant cover in the form of a lurid yellow cloth binding with lettering in red. To modern readers, this livery, created by an anonymous designer, is merely bold and eye-catching. For the original audience, however, it was freighted with symbolism and association. The livid red anticipates the emphasis on blood and bloodiness, but more important is the use of the colour yellow. This was particularly significant for late Victorians, carrying at least two connotations. In a general sense, it proclaimed the novel's status as a sensational entertainment by linking it to the lemon-coloured bindings of yellow backs. These cheap imprints were characteristically reissues of novels by writers such as Ainsworth, Collins, Braddon and Reed, and in binding Dracula in approximately the same colour as the one usually applied to sensationalism, the publisher positioned the book with a distinct field of expectations. At the same time, it projected the notion of depravity by linking the text to The Yellow Book, the celebrated periodical published by John Lane in the 1890s, as the organ of the decadence. In its association with Lane's journal, yellow, so Holbrook Jackson observes, became the colour of the hour and was associated with all that was bizarre and queer in art and life, with all that was outrageously modern. It was therefore another deft move on Constable's part to link Dracula, the very embodiment of the bizarre, with the avant-garde tastes of the yellow book. Conceived as an assertion of the values of the yellow 90s, or decadence, the binding announces the novel's emphasis on the ultra, materialises its focus, appeals to a new class of reader, and builds suspenseful anticipation of the book's contents. Like all effective bindings for the trade, it acts as a provocative sign and playful tease. The cover appearing on the first American edition is equally impressive, although its approach is entirely different from the British issue and was designed to appeal to American audiences. Published by Doubleday and McClure in 1899, this cloth binding presents an abstractive motif of Dracula's castle with tiny bats swirling around it, an ambiguous hint that engages the potential reader by linking Stoker with American Gothic, and especially to the imagery of Poe, by showing Dracula's fortress as if it were the House of Usher from Tales of the Grotesque and Aberesque, 1840. In contrast to the thrill excess of the British first, the American exterior evokes a melancholy, mysterious atmosphere, which is reinforced by its sombre colours, combining varieties of ochre brown with the black outline of the castle. Bright yellow suggests corruption and illness, but the double-day treatment is redolent of death and decay by presenting the colour of earth to establish Dracula's status as a monster from the grave, while hinting at the soil he brings from Transylvania. Colour symbolism is given a further twist in the binding of another American edition issued by Heritage Press of New York, 1965, the less expensive branch of the limited editions club, as one of its series of classics. This cover, probably designed by Felix Hoffman, is figured as a simplified contrast between the red boards and a black spine. 
Red is the colour of blood, but the binary scheme is suggestive of the movement between life and death. Red, black, the indeterminate zone occupied by Dracula. Other bindings are far less sophisticated, with the exteriors of many modern editions featuring hackneyed imagery that is more derived from the conventions of teen gothic, exemplified by Buffy the Vampire Slayer, than from the pages of Stoker's novel. In an age where Dracula's narrative is almost universally known, it is practically impossible to make an original or unpredictable design, and the most suggestive bindings, it seems to me, are still those appearing on the early editions. Illustrating Dracula is just as challenging. For all illustrators, the primary task is representing the main character. On the face of it, this is purely a matter of following the highly pictorial text, and it seems that Stoker provides an unambiguous specification. When first encountered by Harker at the castle door, he is described as a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, clad in black from head to toe, and without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. This portrait is used by Edward Holloway in his pictorial dust wrapper for a cheap edition, issued by Ryder, a small-scale publisher of reprints and more esoteric material, in 1915. Holloway's treatment is a close approximation to Stoker's, but in showing the unsettling moment when Dracula crawls headfirst down the castle wall, he simultaneously reveals the main difficulty of showing a character whose identity is fluid. He may look like an old man, at least initially, but he is also animal-like in his movements and is able to mutate between forms of human, bat, a wolf and a rapacious monster. Illustrating his appearance is thus a matter of engaging with a chimera, of trying to distill his ambivalent identity in a single form. Various strategies have been used to capture the manner of a creature, who takes on the semblance of a man. The first attempt at suggesting this duality can be found on the paper binding of the Constable edition of 1901, the earliest issue to contain any visual material, and was almost certainly the source of the dust wrapper published in 1915. Designed by an anonymous artist, this image of Dracula is crude and cartoon-like, but still manages to suggest his uncertain status, poised between man and creature as he climbs down the wall. The artist preserves the physiognomic detail, recreating the description of Dracula's lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily around the temple, but combines it with the bestial details of naked enlarged feet, which do not feature in the text, and a cloak in the form of a bat's wings. At once a gentleman and a bat, he seems like a lizard as it moved along a wall. Disconcerting and strange, this encapsulation of the shape-shifting count conveys the sense of Harker's terrified perceptions and suggests how an imaginative visualisation can capture the essentials of Stoker's character. Other artists have focused on single frames and on developing a montage. In the HarperCollins edition of 2000, Barry Moser focuses on the notion of Dracula as a monster in disguise, with his true bestial identity contained within a respectable exterior. Moser asserts this approach in his design for the dust wrapper, depicting Dracula as a Victorian man about town whose depravity is suggested only by red eyes, which link to the redness of the title, the red end papers and the tinted top edge. Once again, the book's exterior telegraphs the text's content. 
In the book's interior, however, Moser is mainly concerned with small telling details. In one illustration, he suggests the limits of Dracula's deception by showing a close-up of his animalistic hands, with claw-like nails and the withered skin of the undead. Gruesome, in effect, it reminds us of Harker's discomfiture when he first shakes the Count's hand. A piece of meat that seemed as cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead man than a living man. The Count is at once dead, alive, animal, human. And Moser represents the point of intersection so that he appears to be all of these identities at the same time. Another approach is followed by John Coulthard, whose striking designs were published in a Spanish edition issued by Alma in 2018. In Coulthard's album-like treatment, Dracula is depicted in multiple identities, appearing as the old man who greets Harker as an elegant flaneur on the streets of London, as a fiend in full vampire mode, as a wolf and as an amorphous black shape. This approach traces change, depicting Dracula's menace as it develops over the course of the narrative. Not all artists have opted for these strategies, however. In a trade edition issued by Blackie, 1988, Charles Keeping depicts the character as unchanging in his true form, influenced, no doubt, by Monod's Nosferatu. Keeping presents Dracula as a goblin-like creature, or ogre, an approach that links the text to the conventions of the fairy tale and folklore. His treatment highlights the horror, but contradicts the idea of Dracula as the beast within. In this reading, he is plain for all to see, a strategy which ignores his mutating appearance and does not explain how other characters accept him without comment. Were he always to appear without his disguise, he could not move beyond the doors of his castle. Keeping similarly depicts Lucy Westenra as a zombie-like grotesque, both alluring and repulsive, in accordance with the text. His style is expressionistic, a tumult of suggestive lines, and he powerfully deploys grisé to imply morbidity. Grey tones were often deployed in Renaissance altarpieces to represent the death of the Virgin, and Keeping applies them to Lucy's passing to create the effect of grim irony. The original drawings were in a mixed medium of gouache and ink, which are reproduced photomechanically. Stretching the language of illustration, the artist encompasses the aberrant and the strange, formulating a modern visual equivalent to Stoker's text. Indeed, the technical considerations of illustrating Dracula are important parts of illustrators' responses. Like keeping, many experiment with their medium as they aim to find an appropriate visual texture. Felix Hoffman manipulates wood engraving in his Heritage Club version of 1965 and is particularly effective in using its characteristics to highlight the suffering of Dracula's victims. Though some are tinted, Hoffman's best illustrations are those exploiting the linearity of wood engraving and its capacity to produce stark contrasts. His representation of Renfield is arresting. The angular outlines suggest his dislocated state of mind, while the blankness of the page, where it is not described by lines, conveys a mental emptiness. Equally powerful is the engraving of the male character's response to Lucy's death presented as three blocked figures in muddy, striated lines to evoke the turmoil of grief, their darkness is amplified by the white emptiness of the space they occupy, a dead emotional void, with Lucy herself seemingly in the process of fading away. This has a considerable psychological impact, 
and it is appropriate that Hoffman manipulates the printing idiom which dominated the period of the novel's first appearance. In John Coulthard's version, 2018 on the other hand, the artist creates his effects by using an eclectic mix of established techniques and computer technology. Coulthard typically blends his own drawings with old engravings in form of mixed-media collage, which seems, nevertheless, to form a seamless whole and points to the book's tensions between modernity and myth. This approach is exemplified by the fusion between the vampire as cosmopolitan and Victorian London, inspired by the example of Max Ernst in Une Semaine de Bonté, 1934, and Wilfred Sarti's photomontage work, Coulthard intermingles the journalistic and the imagery of dreams. The effect is unsettlingly strange, redolent of Ernst's surrealism, but rooted in the world of late Victorian metropolis. Here, as in many of the illustrative series, the artist captures the queasy uncertainties of Stoker's weird tale. Indeed, the style of the illustrations and their mode of reproduction play an important part in visualising Dracula, as do the bindings. By turns dreamlike and realistic, elegant and downright strange, colourful and drained of colour, the images project the author's many meanings and immerse us in the experience of evil. That was Sarah Bennett reading Visualising Dracula, written by Simon Cook and published in the Book Collector for the issue of summer 2021. If you enjoyed this Book Collector podcast, you can find many more on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or via our website. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.